0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 21. Last week, I covered the people who took a specific vow and became known as the Nazarites. I also covered the judicial body known as the Sanhedrin. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm devoting the whole episode to biblical leprosy, which isn't likely the same as the disease we know today. And with that, let's get started. I previously touched on leprosy in Chapter 3, Episode 84, but just enough to point out that what's referred to as leprosy in the Bible isn't likely what we currently know as the disease. Before I get to what it likely was, first a short refresher. In both the Old and New Testaments, leprosy gets many mentions. Recall that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for the affliction is zarat. When this word was translated, at least in the three Bible versions I use for the podcast, they all rendered it as leprosy. But this most likely isn't the disease we know by the same name. And, if you were afflicted with the condition... You were essentially an outcast from that society, until it cleared. If you were showing symptoms, and until the priest cleared you, you could not enter the tabernacle, along with many other rules for what you could and could not do. And, not only people could get it, houses could be afflicted too. Which is very telling. An ancient Israelite society, which was, of course, before germ theory, In modern medical practices, the term was used far more broadly than what we use it for today. Today, leprosy is understood to be a contagious bacterial infection that presents on the skin, but also affects the nerves and respiratory systems, and sometimes the eyes. Leprosy, as we know, understand, and classify it, while contagious, is still relatively hard to spread from person to person. The situation was quite different 3000 years ago. Uncovered written reports of leprosy date back thousands of years, obviously, since it merits a mention in Exodus. To be clear, there are various skin diseases that are translated as leprosy, and these don't only appear in Exodus, but also in ancient Indian text as early as 2000 BC, which predates Exodus by several hundred years. Indian writings were rather extensive, with various rules being enacted about those with the condition, rules that prohibited contact with an infected person. Also, those with the disease could not marry. All of this would lead to an outcasting there, too. Other ancient societies would quarantine the afflicted, a practice that was only recently abandoned, as recently as 1983 in India. In the Indian caste system, those with leprosy were considered at the bottom the true untouchables of society. What we informally call leprosy is more appropriately known as Hansen's disease and is caused by a specific bacterium. I'll spare you the biomedical discussion of the bacteria, but I will dive for a few minutes into what we know about this disease before getting to what was probably referred to in the Bible. With Hansen's, after infection, the patient may not show symptoms for as long as 20 years. And that's just in those people where it eventually develops. It's estimated that 19 out of 20 people who are exposed to the bacteria never show symptoms when it does finally begin to appear. Hansen's presents as an infection that can then progress to damage the nerves, respiratory tract, skin, and eyes. And if that wasn't bad enough, the nerve damage can progress to an inability to feel pain, which could lead to repeated injuries or infection from unnoticed injuries. This can then lead to irreversible damage and even amputation, The patient may also experience weakness and poor eyesight. Outwardly, the disease appears on the skin. The first noticeable symptom is usually the development of pale or pink colored patches of skin. These patches tend to be insensitive to temperature or pain. This is usually followed by numbness or tenderness in the hands or feet. Then, secondary infections meaning from other bacteria or viruses, take hold, and those may result in tissue loss. This may then lead to an absorption of the cartilage between the joints and cause the fingers and toes to appear shorter and out of alignment. About 30% of cases where symptoms present experience a degree of nerve damage. If caught and treated early, meaning within a few months, this nerve damage may be reversible. If not caught... It may lead to a loss of muscle function, meaning paralysis. Hansen's can spread from person to person, though it usually requires extensive contact. To this day, we don't know everything about it. Contagion is thought to occur through a cough or contact with fluid from the nose of an infected person. There is a minority of researchers who believe that contagion may also be through skin contact with the leprous wounds. Casual contact, like the shaking of hands, is thought to not be a route of transmission. But it does not spread from mother to unborn baby. And even more surprisingly, it doesn't appear to spread via, um, intimate contact. Like most diseases, it appears that genetics plays a role, though the exact nature of that is really unclear. Modernly, meaning since the advent of antibiotics, it's curable, though the medicinal treatment lasts from 6 to 12 months, depending on the severity of the infection. Very rarely, it may take 2 years, but as short as 72 hours after beginning the antibiotic regimen, the person is considered no longer contagious. And with this treatment, the number of cases has dramatically declined, with the worldwide infections in the 1980s estimated at over 5 million to under 200,000 in 2016, the latest stats available. Thinking about those numbers differently, that's a nearly 97% decline. There are just over 200,000 new cases a year, with about half of those in India. The vast majority of the rest are in the next dozen countries, with Brazil and Indonesia next on the list. In the U.S., there are about 200 cases annually, a number so low that the disease is frequently misdiagnosed as something else before the actual diagnosis is realized. Then, a few interesting tidbits. Unlike most diseases, Leprosy can spread between human and completely unrelated animals, though biologists, through genetic sequencing, think it originated in humans. For example, in Great Britain, red squirrels were found to carry leprosy, a finding that occurred less than four years ago, and the bacteria that infected the modern squirrel is the same as the bacteria found in an over 1,000-year-old British skull. Some researchers have posited that this squirrel may have been responsible for a leprosy outbreak in medieval Europe. At the time, its fur was highly sought after, so there would have been repeated contact between humans and the rodent. In North America, the bacteria is also found in armadillos. Genetics point to the armored animal catching it from humans, having likely been brought over by Europeans in the 15th and 16th centuries and in one of the greatest ironies of history many of the modern cases of the disease in the u.s can be traced back to armadillos the irony is people gave it to them and now they're giving it back all of these dates especially those in europe are important as it was around this time that the greek of the new and the hebrew of the old testament was being translated into european languages I'll circle back to that in a minute. It appears the disease first appeared in what is today India and Pakistan, likely around 2000 BC. At least, that's where the remains of the oldest infected person have been uncovered. Having said that, it could have been introduced from another location, and it's just that no evidence of that has been uncovered. Yet. From there, meaning India and Pakistan... It spread slowly, likely not making it to Europe in the Middle East until the increase in trade, probably around the turn of B.C. to A.D. Though Hippocrates does mention something similar to leprosy in 460 B.C. To that end, the oldest evidence in the Middle East, at least that I could find documentation for, was from a burial shroud in Jerusalem, dating to about 25 A.D., and this is important, as this would mean the disease that's mentioned in Exodus is not leprosy as we know it, Hansen's, but is instead something else and simply mistranslated from Hebrew. I'll get to what it likely was in a few minutes. But it does mean that when Jesus came into contact with lepers, they could have been afflicted with Hansen's. During the European Middle Ages, it seems that the incidence of leprosy exploded, at least as indicated by the growth in treatment facilities. By way of example, in the 12th and 13th centuries, France had close to 2,000 such facilities, well, more akin to isolation wards, known as leprosariums, many run by churches. Also in that time period, The societal perception of those afflicted with leprosy was generally one of fear, and people infected with the disease were thought to be unclean, untrustworthy, and morally corrupt. As such, they were segregated from society. When they were allowed in, they were frequently required to wear clothing that identified them as lepers, or carry a bell. In both the 12th and 14th centuries, they were expelled from many cities. At the time, treatment consisted of both physical and spiritual interventions. With all of that in mind, and considering the Bible translators were presented with a Hebrew word, and needed to find a, well, what was to them, a modern common language equivalent, it's no surprise they chose leprosy. But it probably wasn't biologically correct. Which gets me to the point of the episode. If what's called leprosy in the Old Testament isn't what we call it, Hansen's disease, then what were the Israelites concerned with? First, let's look at the text. Leviticus 13 and 14 tells us that it's a disease that not only affects people, but also can appear in wool or linen, and even in the walls of a house. When this is applied against our modern understanding of disease and biology in general, the most probable takeaway is that it wasn't one specific affliction, but likely a group of disorders and afflictions. In the original Hebrew, the word used was zarat. As far as when it struck people, the current thinking is that the word applied to any progressive skin disease. In the context of the Old Testament text, It was presented as manifesting with a whitening or splotchy bleaching of the skin, raised scales, scabs, infections, rashes, and the like. On non-living surfaces it was said to cause a discoloration. On either it was seen as a sign of impurity, an impurity that needed to be cured, and then the cure verified by a priest. This practice of priestly verification lasted at least through the life of Christ, as seen in Matthew 8, where the text reads, When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. Until the priest validated a curing, the afflicted were cast out from society. This would lead to later implications. Many of the era, and even later, Considered a leprous person as suffering God's judgment for sin. And some sources even list specific sins that may have led to the condition. Sins such as malicious gossip, murder, a vain oath, illicit relations, pride, theft, and miserly behavior. Maybe call these the seven zarat sins. And no, that's not a real thing. I just made it up. In ancient Israel, the cure wouldn't come from medical practices, but from repentance and forgiveness. And, they rationalized the punishment as an indicator and in potentially leading to the unveiling of the root cause. In such a case, classic rabbinic literature presented a zarat of a house as having a practical benefit. The writer claimed that it could occur when an occupant was being miserly and would not lend household objects to their neighbors, claiming they owned nothing of the sort. If the malady hit the house and they had to move everything out, it would be clear to the neighbors that they had indeed possessed the requested item. Rashi took the complete opposite view, noting that in many cases the Israelites had driven the Canaanites from their actual homes and had simply taken over the buildings. In these cases, if they were forced to dismantle the building, they could, potentially, uncover valuable objects hidden in the walls, a literal hidden treasure. That seems to be the minority view, as most viewed the affliction as a curse brought on by sin, and this would continue through the time of Christ. This isn't surprising, as it's old as the theology itself, and was seen in John 9, As Jesus and his disciples walked along, they saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Moral associations have continued throughout history. The 6th century Pope Gregory the Great, followed shortly afterwards by the Archbishop of Seville, Isidore, considered people with the disease to be heretics. Of course, with many people, the association of disease and sin exists through today, despite our medical knowledge. So, this is a disease of the skin, hair of the beard and head, clothing of linen and wool, and that grows on walls, and the complete list of symptoms on people can be pieced together. Like so many things I've recently covered, much of this grew not from the text, but from the Jewish religion as it matured and developed, so from later writers and thinkers, along with oral tradition. I'm covering it because it became part of their belief and is part of the history. Moving along. The first group of symptoms are boils and burns on the skin, but not burns resulting from heat nor boils from an infection or violent wound. Also bald patches with lesions on the scalp or beard. Note that balding without diseased skin is not a sign of impurity. Also diseased skin, seen as white patches tinged with red, indicated the disease. Patches of white hair. Normal skin appearing in the middle of a diseased patch. Diseased patches of skin growing larger. Also, a person was not allowed to cut off a diseased patch, so much so that he would be considered impure until another patch arose and was then cured. The only exception to this was in the case of circumcision. With all of those symptoms, it becomes more clear that it wasn't a singular disease. So what could it have been? If it presented as a whitening of the skin over the whole body with sores, it's considered by researchers to have probably been psoriasis. If it was the sort that was seen as spreading sores, it was likely impotigo. This is an infection that results in red sores that form around the nose and mouth. The sores rupture, ooze for a few days, then form a yellow-brown crust. If the affliction was a spreading sort of swelling, it could have been erysipelas which is a bacterial infection that results in an intense rash. There were other afflictions, such as ringworm, which really isn't a worm, but a fungus. Also, tropical ulcers, which are a bacterial infection. Vitiligo, which causes patches of skin to turn white. Other possible afflictions with some of these symptoms are dermatitis, scabies, scarlet fever, smallpox, and favus, a yellow crusty circular fungal skin patch, typically found on the scalp. As for smallpox, this may be what the narrative refers to as plague. The list of other possible conditions is long, but you get the point. It was likely many of these, all grouped under a singular term. And of course, later, it could have been true leprosy, Hansen's. In many cases, if the afflicted part of the body was normally concealed then it was not considered to be a sign of impurity. This was judged when people wore the traditional clothing and assumed different postures depending on their gender. For skin eruptions on the legs, men are inspected standing as though they are hoeing and women standing as if they are rolling dough. For eruptions on the arms men would raise their arms as though they are picking olives, and women would raise their arms as though they were weaving or spinning. Also, the disease was inconsequential on non-Hebrews, even on their clothing. And by non-Hebrews, it means Gentiles. All of this points to the consideration that it wasn't a contagious disease, but was considered ritual impurity. These considerations are disputed, and did not progress to the version as a full-blown disease. Though, this may be yet another case of not being able to completely disassociate one from the other. As for clothing, only wool from a sheep could be afflicted. Other animals' wool, like from a camel, could not. But if the fabric was a mixture of different wools, then it could be affected. Dyed wool was unaffected, but if the wool was naturally colored, like that from a black sheep, then it could. Fabric could be, but only if at least half of the fabric was made from linen. If it was less than half, it was safe. Leather could be impure, but not if it was from the hide of a marine animal. Dyed leather was unaffected. On clothing, it would appear as green or red discoloration. If the priest declared it suspect, it would be confined for seven days, then re-inspected. After the week, if it was still impure, it would be burnt. If it disappeared, then the clothing would be washed in the ritual bath, the mikvah, and it was finally considered pure. As for housing, if an occupant thought he saw discoloration, he was required to inform the priest The occupants would empty the house of all contents before the inspection. Why? Well, if the house was declared impure, then everything in it was impure too. And, upon emptying, hopefully your neighbors didn't see that thing they had asked to borrow. The priest would look for lesions on the wall that were either green or red and had sunken below the wall's surface. If found, the house was left unoccupied for a week. After seven days, it was re-inspected. If it had spread, the affected stones were removed, the area cleaned, and either new stones or plaster installed where the affected stones once were. If the house is part of a multi-unit dwelling, think the ancient equivalent of a condo or duplex, then the neighbors must help with the removal and replacement. After the gap is filled, the house is left empty for another week. After that time, if the inspection reveals all is good, then everyone moves back in. But if the condition has reappeared, the house is dismantled and the pieces carted outside of the city. In Chapter 3, Episode 84, I covered how the person or dwelling was declared impure, and then, assuming the affliction passed, clean, so I'll avoid rehashing that. Just know that it involved a priest and consumes about 1,600 words of Leviticus 13 and 14, some four times the length of the Ten Commandments. Very detailed. But, there are a few curious things I did not previously cover. Later regulations, the ones that added color and clarity to the text, had a few interesting tidbits. Only houses with four walls and four corners are suspect and all four walls had to be made from stone, wood, or plaster. The house has to sit on the ground. Treehouses and houseboats are immune. On multi-level houses, only the ground floor can be impure. Houses are the only structures that can be affected, not barns or temples or other structures. Later interpretations would limit the affliction to houses and land allotted to the twelve tribes. But not Jerusalem since it wasn't part of the allotment. As for what this could have been if it was found on a wall, not surprisingly mold, mildew, and fungus. In wood, it could have been dry rot, which is wood decay caused by various species of fungus. But the colors given are interesting, and point toward outbreaks of penicillium, which, if true, would be ironic, as from within this family of fungus comes the antibiotic penicillin. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the history of the city of Jericho, first mentioned in Numbers 22. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week... Help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.